Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest today is P.O. Shunker. P.O.'s been on both sides of that aisle, on the brand side, including stops at Coca-Cola and Samsung, where he held senior marketing management roles, to the agency side, including stops on Ogilvy & Mather and Lowen & Partners, where he worked on accounts like American Express and Mercedes-Benz. Most recently, P.O. just launched his own agency called The Actionist, whose mission is to make marketing more actionable to the business. Here's my conversation with P.O. Shunker. Did I say that right? You did. Hey, Steve, how are you? I am doing well. I am so, so glad we got connected. Here's a question I start off with everybody because I'm just fascinated by this, especially someone with your experience. What's the difference between advertising and marketing? I think to me, when I look at it, advertising is one channel of how to reach a consumer it used to be the dominant channel, of course, and now marketing, I think, has become so much broader in how you actually talk to a consumer. Marketing is packaging, marketing is social, marketing is customer experience, marketing is the sales call. It's so much bigger and broader than just advertising. But it's funny how people will transpose one for the other still in this day and hour. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's very interesting. Of course, you can guess I've gotten a different answer every time that I question because everybody has their own answer. So let me start with your agency side. You worked at two big agencies and you worked on two big accounts. What are some things you learned while you were on that side of the aisle, the agency side? You know, so I worked, yes, I worked at Loan Partners for Mercedes, really helping revitalize that brand. And then went on to Amex and Ogilvy and really sort of worked on the whole green card revitalization. And I think that the biggest thing I learned was, how, I think on that side of the agency fence, was how you actually delve into and create sort of what is true to the DNA of that brand, but bring it to life in a whole new way. And that, that was absolutely what we did with Mercedes. We took German engineering and we gave it heart at Loan Partners, right? And we really helped bring Mercedes to life to a whole new generation with some pretty iconic work. With the green card, the same thing. We really had to redefine what success meant. We really went back to the DNA of American Express, which is all about having arrived, having achieved a level of status. And we had to redefine that for a whole new generation. We had to take what success meant and, and translate it for the, the early aughts. Right. And that was very much into entrepreneurship, what success meant on a personal level versus success financially, which was what, you know, American Express used to be. So it was really understanding how you take a brand DNA and you reinterpret it for a new generation. Right. Having said that, and, and really at Ogilvy especially, we did and I learned truly how to bring an integrated play to the advertising, right? How you take one idea and you ex extend it across every single channel. 
That was what I think was really wonderful about the agency side and really working with some phenomenal creative talent. Mm. But it was incredibly frustrating for me because what I saw and what I still see today, frankly, is the agency world still being very narrow within advertising and still defining it vis-a-vis a TV commercial. And what I realized even then was the opportunity to bring something much, much bigger to a client than just an ad platform. And that is really what precipitated the move to client side was I actually wanted to be in the driver's seat and actually drive the business with the ideas rather than actually having to ask permission for it. I just wanted to be in the driver's seat saying, this is where we need to take the brand. These are the things that we need to do that are much, much broader than a TV commercial or advertising and really begin to impact the entire company. Yeah. And it's a perfect segue, right? And you used the word integrated, right? And and when you went to Coke, your title was head of integrated marketing and you got there and it's really interesting because you got there, volumes were declining, the obesity issue had taken over, right? And the whole sugar, you know, and what's in products and parents and all that stuff. So it was daunting to say the least, because as you put it, which I'd love to said everybody knew their brand better than you because it's Coke, right? So this daunting task, you know, of dealing with this iconic brand, Talk a little bit about what you faced, the challenges, and how you overcame them. Yeah, I think it was six months in, Steve, six months into the job. And I, my apartment was actually really close to the Coke building. So the Coke logo would always shine into my bedroom at night. And I remember waking up six months, six or seven months into the gig and truly, truly waking up with a cold sweat because it was like, oh my God, I've taken on, at that point at least, it was the biggest brand in the world. And I was like, oh God, what have I stepped into? Do I even know what I'm going to be doing over here? Because every single person in that building knew that brand, had had some interpretation of that brand that they brought to the table. And I was having to go up against all of that. It was a daunting task of transforming this brand into a really modern brand and revitalizing the brand. But the challenge we faced wasn't about brand love or awareness, right? It's what you just said earlier. Everyone knows the brand globally. We had to figure out how to have people reconsider the brand. The brand had become wallpaper and everyone knew it, but everyone ignored it. And how do you actually uh, draw notice to this brand? So there was really two phases to it, Steve. One phase was literally just saying, how do we bring this brand back to life? And honestly, how we did it was through packaging, which no one knows. It was actually Turner Duckworth. Wyden and Kennedy played an instrumental role in bringing this brand back to life for us through some seminal pieces of work. But it was actually Turner Duckworth who did the visual identity design. And and think of it. Everyone thinks of Coke and everyone thinks of Coke from a TV commercial, like iconic, iconic pieces of work, some of which we actually did with Wyden as well. But think of what gets far more exposure every day and what people actually reach out for. It's the packaging and the visual identity system. That's what you see. And at that point, that visual identity system was absolutely a dog's breakfast. Every single brand manager and brand person had put their imprint on the packaging. So it had gone from this beautiful red and white to red and white with bubbles, red and white with 
green bubbles, red and white, with the the ribbon that had yellow and green stripes to it. And if I could show you the packaging, you can imagine it was every and plus plus every single sponsorship that happened would hit the packaging as well. Mm. So it was truly, truly something that had lost its sense of clarity and purpose down to the packaging. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt there, P.O., but you said something really interesting about the packaging and a lot of people not being aware of it. Was it just something that was just internal? It wasn't like promoted externally? We just, here's, here's the math that we took senior management to through. We just said, I know you're focused on the marketing as in the advertising specifically and by advertising TV commercials because that is what drove fame at Coke, right? That is what every brand person, every CMO, that is what they focus on because that is what drew and drove the frame, the fame, sorry, for Coca-Cola brand. As you know, like Hilltop, Minjo Green, Everyone wanted that piece of fame from Coca-Cola, right? That's what you dreamt of, that you would be associated with a famous tagline and a famous TV commercial that would create the fame for you and for the company. And while that, in fact, still remains true and certainly held true while I was there, the fundamental thing was far many more people in terms of billions of impressions, see your packaging, see your vending machine, see your lorry truck, see your signs at a McDonald's. Far more many people, right, were exposed to that than they were exposed to the advertising. Mm. And what we did was we said, before we even get to that, we have to look at this first. And that is the little known fact in terms of what truly turned the brand around. Steve, and I'll get to the BCD question you asked me a little bit later on, but the point is your product and your product packaging was far greater advertising for you than any TV commercial, which either you chose to see or not. And if you were a younger person, you didn't see that TV commercial at all because that wasn't the programming you were on because you were you were on social, right? It's, it's a fascinating discussion. And we can have a totally sidebar, and I'll have you back on for part two because it's a fascinating to think about the impact and power Right. And I think that's the operative words, at least from my lens, that the packaging of a given product can have. Yes. And, and truly what no one gives credit to is how much the packaging and the whole rehaul of the visual identity system was actually, in fact, the first thing out the gate that changed people's perception of the Coca-Cola brand. Not the marketing, not the advertising, but the packaging and the visual ID system. So literally, we worked with Turner Duckworth and we rehauled. We cleaned up the entire vision. So we took out the bubbles. We took out the stripes. We took out the refreshment cues on the packaging. Like people had added in, oh, we need to have the bubbles to show that it's uplift. We need to show the mm. condensation of the droplets on the packaging so that people know that it's cold. We literally, with Turner Duckworth and someone called Moira Cullen, who is the head of our design for us internally, we stripped away every single thing. And what we reduced it down to was the... Lipstick red 
Coke can with the white, with the blindingly white stripe mm. and the Coca-Cola logo. And we actually refreshed that entire thing. I cannot tell you how traumatic that was for the company. The stripping away, yeah. of all those things that they had added on, right? The sediment that they had added on over the years, we literally took, all we did was we actually went back to Coke as Coke used to be. And of course, with a very modernized logo. And we literally revisited and reinvigorated the visual identity system down to the open close sign on a convenience store door. We took mm. it down to that granular level. Wow. Right? But those are those were hundreds of millions of dollars in change for the company, by the way, in terms of what we had to go through to make those changes. By the way, we won the Cannes Grand Prix for design because of that. But it was the first thing, and no one understands that, it was the fundamental thing that actually helped drive the, the, the transformation of the Coke brand. We then actually got Widen on board. Okay, and this was a parallel process. We then got widened on board. And, and really what we said was we, we literally simplified Coke to Coke brings joy. We just literally went to that. Coke brings joy. And we wanted it to be the overarching idea that would drive every single piece of communication. And that's actually what widened worked of us as the brief. Mm. But it was also the brief, if you think of it and if you see the visual ID system, Coke brings joy was translated by Turner Duckworth into whatever we do should bring a smile to your face that when you see the Coke brand, there should be that little bit of wit and surprise in the design itself that will bring that, that smile. And that is how we will translate joy into design. What I'm listening to you and, and I'm thinking about, you know, what we do at system one is all rooted in emotion and everything you just said. I mean, you were, you were taking a chance, a big chance on how someone responded emotionally to these changes. Well, the thing was, Coke had become so impersonal and so ubiquitous and so much of a wallpaper as a, of a wallpaper brand, as I mentioned, that the first thing we needed to do was to modernize the brand visually so that when people saw it, they'd be like, wow, that looks amazing. It's nothing less than what Apple did when Apple went from the rainbow colored logo, if you remember, for Apple to the silver, right? They stripped away everything, but kept the core of the brand from a design perspective. And that's what Steve Jobs led in the reinvigoration of the Apple brand, right? When they went to white and silver, as you as you will recall, and they walked away from the whole rainbow colored yep. Apple, right? It was no different. We actually, in fact, referenced Apple to the company. We actually mm. referenced Apple method, the method brand, we mentioned Target, and we actually showed them what brands, what modern brands did that was they simplified everything. And here was the really interesting thing in terms of within Coke. Everyone was looking at it because, of course, the brand had now become yellow, orange, green, and the red, which was Coke, had absolutely been completely camouflaged by all these other colors. And the big question was like, well, we can't own red any longer. Target owns red. The Economist owns red. And we were like, if you don't own red, mm -hmm. if you don't own red, no one else should be owning red because Coke is red. Yep. And that's literally, you know, literally dusting off every single color off the brand to say, you've got to come back because this is symbolic of who you are. Yep. And then they took that globally, Steve. And that was a lot of investment. That was, that was a cleanup that cost the company a lot of money. But to their credit, they did it. 
Exactly. No, it's 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 fascinating. It really is. Okay. I, and I would love to keep talking about this. And, and definitely there's a part two coming because the whole packaging thing and what you did at Coke. And I think there's so many lessons here for other brands, especially iconic brands, right? Of simplifying, of getting back to basics kind of thing. But we'll table that for our next call. Uh, let me ask you a question on obesity, though. Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, I think the quick answer in that one was, once we had modernized the brand the way we described it and Wyden came in and did some amazing advertising, the obesity issue really hit, right? And that was what was absolutely causing the decline in purchase and volume. And Sandy Douglas, who was the CEO of Coke North America, came to myself and the CMO at that time, which was Alison Lewis, and said, what, what do we need to do? And really what we said was, we went back and there was this really phenomenal piece of insight and research that had been done where moms especially were saying, hey, listen, I'm only going to allow this brand in to a certain moment of permissiveness. I'm only going to bring this in for a family night dinner or a birthday party. But otherwise, this brand stays out of the house, right? Yeah, right. We said you have to work within that for want of a better word, handicap, right? There's this moment of permissiveness that they're giving you. You have to work within that narrow window because a moment of permissiveness is actually also a moment of celebration. They're celebrating a birthday. They're celebrating a family night. So really, mm -hmm. the brand can be about celebration, right? Mm -hmm. That whatever you think of a moment of celebration, which can be as small as a birthday or as big as the Christmas holidays, right? Yep. Or holidays starting with Thanksgiving all the way through Hanukkah, all the way through January, that it can actually span moments that are big and small, own moments of celebration. So we literally transformed Coke Brings Joy to Coke Brings Joy to moments that matter. Mm. And we completely rehauled everything from a marketing standpoint. And this is where we went, Steve, from simply being about advertising to becoming a brand that touched all aspects of marketing. Because what we did with that was we said, you've got to be about moments of celebration. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to rehaul the trade calendar so that we align all the trade promotions behind three big moments of celebration, sports, which is Q1, Super Bowl, NASCAR, NCAA, NBA, two, which were big sponsorship moments for Coke. Summer, which we had actually never really owned in a big way or for a long time, and then the winter holidays. So three big promotional calendars. Then we really aligned every single thing with retail partners, Walmart, Kroger, Target, right? And we aligned them to those promotions as well. And then we went into all their owned channels, like AMC, 7-Eleven, realigned it behind that as well, and literally went across the board to make sure that every single touch point of Coke across owned channel, earned, shared, and paid were aligned behind one idea and one notion called celebration. Clearly, and I'm stating the obvious, you left no stone unturned. <laughs> we tried not to, right? Because we knew that ultimately, while everyone was focused on a TV ad and specifically a TV ad for Super Bowl, and that's where everyone put their focus, really what the consumer was paying attention to was, I'm walking into the store, I'm going into a retail channel, and I'm seeing Coke over there, how should I think about it? And we literally went down to, how do we intersect with moms and teens, cross off, yep. right? They actually might never go into the Coke aisle, but they will go into the ice cream aisle. How do we intersect with Coke and ice cream? Mm -hmm. Or they might go into the barbecue aisle for, for summer. 
How do we yeah. accept them at summer, right? So we really figured out every single part of the consumer journey, but we intersected with them from TV on down, down into retail. And that's really how we reversed volume decline from, I think it was something like negative two to a plus one, which was massive, massive, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's what I call, Steve, it's how you go from being a vertical brand where you're just basically within marketing and thinking only of advertising and maybe social and going horizontally across the company with the same idea and working. I did not manage retail trade. That was a whole separate group. I did not manage the partnership channels with, you know, Walmart or Kroger, but we worked with all of those individuals within Coke to make sure, right? We were the keepers of the brand, but we really helped them understand how they needed to align with us and what we did, yeah. right? So that one message was coming through across multiple channels. And we really took Coke from being just a vertical brand to a horizontal brand, if that makes Wait. sense. It, it makes total sense, and uh, you really must love challenges because after Coke, you eventually joined Samsung as uh, EVP uh, and head of brand for Samsung Mobile, right? And yes, you, yes, in Korea. In Korea, you moved to right? And you were charged with making Samsung a renowned and loved brand from just known as a manufacturing kind of brand. And mm -hmm. if that wasn't enough... Samsung has a reputation of being a tough workplace, especially for foreigners. So I'm curious, I know my audience would be curious, you know, that's a lot of challenges to rebrand or take a, you know, a brand known as, in many people's eyes, the manufacturing, but then as an outsider. Talk about that. How did, how did that go down? Like when you first joined, was there resistance? Like, let's, let's get into that. Yes, it was pretty challenging. I had no idea when I joined that, I mean, I knew from a lot of people in the US how tough Samsung was, but when I'd gone through the whole interview process, it was with the global CMO, YH Lee, and with, with the CEO of mobile, DJ Co. And so, you know, when you're dealing with the top end of, of the interview process, you don't really see what lies beneath the water, right? In terms of the iceberg you're about to hit. Mm -hmm. And really what I, within six months, of joining began to realize, wow, this is tough. They really, really have a distrust of foreigners. And what I came to understand, Steve, is because I, I grew to love those people when I worked with them and got to know them, was that so many foreigners came to Samsung and were known to come to Samsung to grab their piece of fame or money and then leave. And so there was really a very long how do you say it? it was long formed skepticism of foreigners coming in to come in for the money, to come in for the fame and then leave, not make much impact and go away. So they kind of viewed me in that same light, you know, and that, okay, here's another guy who's going to be out within the year, you know, so we don't have to listen to him because he's going to be out within the year. We'll just go on our merry way and, yep. you know, keep going. And I, I realized that very, very quickly. And in, in part and parcel with that, is I think what I, what I came to understand was so many people, whether it was within Korea or outside, would try and impose their DNA onto the brand. Hmm. Like, I am really famous, I'm coming in, you're gonna listen to me, and I'm gonna do this to the brand because this is what will make the brand famous. 
but they never, or perhaps at least as far as I know, never took the time to understand what made that company the company and what was the DNA of the company. And literally on the very first day of my onboarding, HR played this video and then they left, they played the video and they, they pressed play and they left the room. And it was all about the creation of Samsung. And I, this, there was this great story about a post-Japanese occupation. They create a grocery store and the founder builds a grocery store to feed and employ fellow, his fellow countrymen. It, Samsung starts as a grocery store, if you could believe. Mm. And they kept evolving from that. Like whatever it would take to actually make the company thrive, they became that. And that's how the company really got its start. But there was this amazing piece of philosophy that he starts off with too. One was that he was doing this for the betterment of the country, his people, and eventually all of mankind, right? And, and the notion was to create progress by defying barriers. That was something that was written on, on script. And I came across those two pieces of information. I was like, wow, that's really interesting that that is what the brand, that's how the brand started. So the whole notion of progress, innovation, defying barriers was something that actually went back to the creation and formation of Samsung. And that's kind of what we build the brand up from. And when I took that back to DJ, the CEO, and to the rest of the team, and I said, here's the beginnings of the brand. Here's how we have to build this brand globally. What they loved was that we had reached back into their own history to actually create the brand, right? Mm. To build the brand up. And I think that's where I began to get a lot of respect and trust from the inner circles, and especially what they call the working teams, which was the, the teams below all the senior people who truly did all the work. And that's where I think I began to get traction because I had respected the DNA, or at least they felt I had gone back and respected that DNA that no one else had taken time. Uh, so it's time. so it's very similar to what happened at Coke, right? You went back to the basics, the DNA. I think that's, you really have to figure out, I think the trick for brand marketers is what is it, the DNA of the brand? I mean, Steve Jobs did nothing less, right? He kept, When he comes back in and, and would think different, he said, our brand is rooted in this philosophy of we're built for the creative class. We, we make tools for creative thinkers. And then they came up with think different. Uh, you, the whole trick is to go back to the DNA of what makes the brand the brand and then reinvent right? How it's presented, but you don't change the brand. You translate it for a new generation. And that's how you respect it. If that makes sense. It, it does. And it's, it's, I'm curious to hear your thought. Do you think the more or the longer a given brand is around, the more likelihood that they kind of lose their way? Is that a fair statement? I, I think it's so easy to because people come in, they add a, their own layer, their own interpretation. And in the end, the brand gets trapped underneath those layers of interpretation by everyone else. And ultimately, your job at some point is to excavate all of that, get rid of all of that and go back to what it used to be, but then present it in a new way. Right. And along the way, you're going to have, I would imagine you met this at Coke and Samsung, the traditionalists, right, who were just re reluctant to change. Yeah. Well, I think, and then I, I never realized that, but yes, there were so many people who had touched the brand and interpreted the brand that when you were saying, you know, let's remove the bubbles, there was someone sitting in the room who was directly responsible for putting the bubbles in the can. And they were like, what do you mean? <laughs> They're my bubbles. <laughs> Those are my bubbles. Right. And it literally, it was down to that level, right? <laughs> 
That's you know, you like, oh my God, I didn't realize you were the bubble guy, you know, <laughs> the bubble guy. <laughs> um, I want to get into where you're at now mm -hmm. and it's real exciting. And I, I really want people to hear uh, what you're doing. The, the new company, which is going to launch soon. I mean, yep. as record, as we're recording this, it's going to launch soon. It's called the actionist, right? Yep. yep. I, I'm giving you, here's the floor. Tell the world what the action is, will do, why it's different, and so on. So I think that the reason we called it The Actionist, and there's a real reason behind the name, Steve, is that what we have observed is that for a whole host of internal and external reasons, it's becoming harder and harder for marketers and CMOs, and I was a CMO in my previous gig, to actually make marketing actionable to the business. There are many factors involved, right? And I won't go through all of them, but what we would just, we recognize that, that it has become such a challenge to actually make marketing not just actionable, but measurable to the business. And, and I think we bring a very unique perspective versus most consultancies, right? I have been an agency guy and I've known how to build some pretty big brands like Mercedes, like, like American Express, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I've been a client who's been client side, who knows the pressures of what it takes to actually build a business vis-a-vis -vis marketing, right? And you have to drive that business as a client marketer. And Lee, my partner, Lee Roth, my partner, has been a marketing consultant for the last five years, and he knows how to do it faster and more efficiently. And if you think of it, we have this three-point you know, turn between being client marketers, agency guys, as well as consultants who really bring to, bring to bear on how you build a brand that can also build the business. And that's a very big thing. Like you call us when you want to solve your everyday marketing and tie it to a long-term business issue or challenge, right? Because it's not just about building a brand. It's about building a brand that actually will help drive the business. And we do it by really focusing on what are the challenges that the business faces, what are the headwinds, and how can we take those headwinds and make them the tailwinds. The example I gave you of Coke, of taking that moment of permissiveness and jujitsuing it into a moment of celebration and then taking that across the entire company mm -hmm. is in essence what we're beginning to do with some of the companies we, we want to work with. Fascinating. I'm very much looking forward to when you guys go public and by the time this episode airs, you will be live and, and everybody will go to your website for sure. And I'll make sure we, we share a link to it when this episode goes live. So congratulations and best of luck. Thank you. So I want to, I want to quickly go back to something you touched on with at Samsung. The, I believe it was Samsung you're talking about, but the horizontal versus vertical brand building. And not that we have a ton of time left, but I want to, I want you to expand on that because I want marketers, CMOs, everybody listening to to really understand what you mean by that and what the difference is between horizontal and vertical. The way I see it, and this is really something that, that I have noticed and observed, vertical marketing, it typically stays within the marketing function. It's the traditional way of marketing, Steve, right? I'm, I'm the CMO. I'm responsible for all the things within my purview, and I'm building the brand and the marketing within my function. So it's vertically aligned. The challenge is that customers experience a brand horizontally across the company. They don't experience just the marketing or the TVC, right? 
they will experience customer service. They will experience something in channel. They will experience something that could happen in a completely different function of the, the, the company that could actually define the company to them and the brand because that is the brand behavior. Horizontal branding is nothing more than saying you've got to take what is the essence of that brand. Coke celebration, or uh, with Samsung, it was the whole notion of an open platform versus a closed platform of Apple. How does the brand behave as a result of that across the entire company so that you experience a brand unilaterally and horizontally, right? It actually gives the CMO and the marketing function even more and greater importance because now they're saying with the C-suite, they're actually talking about the fact this is how this brand, it, this moment of celebration now translates into trade, now translates into a partnership strategy, now translates into a channel strategy, now translates into what we do at vending. Literally, we went down into vending. And it's nothing to do with marketing in terms of a direct report, but it has everything to do with how a customer and a consumer experiences a brand, right? They don't know it's coming from the marketing department when they walk into a trade. In, if, if I walk into a convenience store and I see the Coke vending machine or if I see the, the poor machine, I don't know that it's not come from marketing. I just know that that's, that's my experience with the brand. And that's what I mean by horizontal, right? That it cuts across the company because that is what's happening increasingly uh, in today's world. Mm. It's so true. And I've had this discussion, oh my gosh, with so many people saying to the outside world, it's one brand. Exactly. And if that one brand is saying five different things across, exactly. if, if yep. you as a consumer are seeing, uh, you know, if I'm seeing the UX UI from Samsung, and that's my experience. That's my experience with Samsung. I'm holding that phone and I am experiencing the brand through the wallpaper design, through what's happening actually in terms of the wallpaper, the UX UI, or what I'm seeing with their partnership with Google. That's the brand to me. I may, may never see your TV commercial ever. Right. Right? Right. But I'm holding your phone in my hand. That's the brand. That's my brand experience. That's what exactly. I know. Exactly. Right. And and no one is saying, well, the you know, the email marketing team at Samsung is clearly not communicating with the other <laughs> the consumer doesn't care. I I might never open that email. And if I'm if I'm a young person under twenty one, I don't even know I don't even know why you'd be communicating to me with that, right? Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. may see you on social, I may see you as a partnership strategy, but my experience of you is how many clicks it takes for me to get to my camera. Yeah, exactly. Or how, how long it takes for me to onboard. That's my brand experience. And if you don't think of brand that way today, all right, there's, of course, this brand is emotional. Of course, brand has to have, to have an emotional resonance. But you tell me that me experiencing a brand through my camera is not brand experience to me. That's bigger than any TVC. Of course, right. Okay, I want to I want to segue for a second. Now you've you've been in charge of some really massive transformations at really big brands, right? And we we've talked about the challenges you faced, but I'm curious, you know, are there other challenges that you faced in dealing with massive brands, massive transformational changes? Yeah, I, I think 
To be honest with you, Steve, I think that I always found myself, whether it was on the agency side or on the client side, that people were coming to me to say, hey, we, list, we really need you to revitalize X. We need you to bring this back to life. And the thing I remember being, you know, I was always being charged with these transformational agendas. And my whole career has really been based on that. And the thing that I realized uh, was the biggest obstacle was being brown-skinned, being gay, being small, there would come this realization very, very quickly in the in the agenda, in the transformational agenda, where people would be like, that's the guy who's mm. going to actually change the company, mm-hmm. you know, or that's the guy who's going to change my brand, this small brown skin, you know, gay guy mm-hmm. who's going to do that. And I would always find myself no matter how capable I was, no matter how much I felt I was up to the task. And by the way, to this day still, right, that there was a discount factor, that I would immediately have that discount factor associated with it. And I realized that that was, frankly, bluntly put, my handicap in that that I was seen as being handicapped and leading that agenda. And people would actually discount what I'd bring to the table because of that. I'd actually have to work around that in order to actually lead the transformation. It's surprising, but not at the same time. Hmm. You would think and think in this day and era that it wouldn't be. Right. Right. But it it was. It is. Uh, I Hmm. still get that. I bet. Yeah. It's a sad but true, you know, indictment. So how did you get around these unfortunate but true stereotypes? I did something that that I, I, I fondly call the 1% transformation. And it was really just based on the principle that I was always this, you know, in quotes, this agent of change or seen as this agent of change. And I realized even without the, the way I was being perceived by all these companies or agencies, I just realized that even without that, laying down and bringing down 100% change had a 0% chance of success, right? There's this flight or fight mechanism that triggers in our mind where you just go, I'm either going to fight this change or I'm just going to run away from it. And I just realized that even without that perception, I had to do things differently. And it always started with me having a very big vision for the brand and the company and knowing exactly what I was going to do and then breaking it down into piecemeal literally 1%, 2% things mm. that I would bring to the table. And I would only uh, have the people I was working with in any specific discipline see that 1% or 2%. So it was never overwhelming to them. But it was always part of the much, much bigger scheme. So it was never overwhelming. They never saw the complete transformation agenda because sometimes if they see you coming, they can also kill it in time. So I would never allow it for that. But I always knew what I was building and obviously was always building it with my, with my boss. And then we would do that. And then we would reassemble. Once everyone had their pieces complete, we would reassemble everything back into the 100%. And that's how we really sort of led the change across not just companies, but agencies as well, right? We just we just broke it into, we took, you know, 1% times 100 equals 100% change. But everyone just looked and saw that they were doing 1%, which was just... Hey, that's nothing. So, for example, as an example, you know, with Coke trade marketing, it was like, hey, listen, this is really, really bad. But to take away those dollars, because that was a creative center with trade and they would do all the work, but it was absolutely killing the brand. 
what we went to the CFO and CEO was to say, hey, listen, we could save the company $24 million on non-working budget every year to $36 million. We could just do it by basically centralizing this function here. Mm. And, a lot, and of course, they wanted to save that kind of money because those kinds of monies were being saved across the board, right? But it allowed the brand to be much, much more centralized and with one cohesive identity, voice, strategy, etc. And suddenly we were able to affect what happened at a very local level, which no one had been able to affect, right? But it allowed for that one notion of celebration to continue down to the local level. Mm. As I, I hope that made sense. It made total sense. And, and, and I have an analogy, and tell me if this is right. So I'm a big sports guy, and there's a, a famous football coach named Bill, Bel- Bill Belichick, who's the head coach of the New England Patriots, a very, very successful football team. And one of his mantras is basically, you do your job. If you do your job to the best of your ability, the team will succeed. And as you were talking about the 1%, I was thinking about that you compartmentalized, right? This is what I need you to focus on. This is your 1%. And this is your yeah. one. That kind of, is that a fair analogy of you do your job? Yeah. And in fact, as you were talking, it also reminded me of another analogy of being a conductor with an, you know, conducting an orchestra, right? Everyone has their role. Everyone has to play a certain role. But as a conductor, you know that you've got to get everyone playing at the same time in a different yep. way, right? Yep. And, and that's what you were kind of doing. You were really sort of conducting this. And yeah, you're right. That's kind of how we went about doing it and how we affected that change. It's when you come in with these, unless you're a Steve Jobs, unless you're a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, because you are the CEO, you can drive that change top down. Unless you're in that rarefied position, right? I have found, at least for myself, that the best way to organize massive change like this is to break it down into small chunks. But you have to have the vision. You have to know what you're driving towards, right? And then you actually break down the pieces and you take it down, you break down those pieces to what you need to do today. You always know the end goal, but you break it down to what has to happen today. And you give it to people because you overwhelm them if you give them too much because they just get frightened. And if you add on the whole notion of politics or prejudice, it complicates the whole success factor. Yep. And then you're really in trouble. You're in trouble. Okay. Okay. Question about being a CMO. You know the stat. You've heard it, I'm sure. for Seemingly forever, CMOs have the shortest tenure in the C-suite on average. I get asked this almost every day. Why? Uh, I, I think there's really two reasons for that, Steve, at least in my experience. One is that it's where a lot of the money is spent within a company typically. And so if things go wrong and if things need to be cut, it's the thing to blame the easiest within the C-suite. That has been certainly something I have observed as, as a very easy scapegoat. I think on the flip side of it, it, it's when you come in with not really addressing the core business challenge or the core business headwind, and understanding that you have to build the marketing around that specific issue and, and you have to disseminate and make sure that all channels really address that issue. That's where at some point you can get blamed, rightly so, right? On one side, I find it's just a flip off like, well, let's blame him or her because that's the easiest place to go. And a lot of politics play that role. It's the easiest thing to blame. On the flip of it is 
and to be fair to it, it's like when you don't come in and truly look at it and say, you know what, here's the business issue. I'm going to build my whole marketing and brand off that because that's the long-term headwind facing the business. And all of my marketing is going to be built upwards from that and disseminated across the organization horizontally. If, if you don't come in with that mindset, at some point, the finger will get pointed at you. And I believe rightly so in that yeah. instance. Yeah, it's there's. I don't think there's any right, wrong answer. Um, you know, when people ask me the question, I give them that kind of. There's well, it, it, there's so many factors, right? And one of the things I always make sure people realize is that not every, not every CMO is the same. You know, you can have different backgrounds, and it really depends on what a given company needs in a given CMO. And I think sometimes there's just this. Well, we have an open role for CMO, hire CMO. Yeah. I, I think you nailed it. I really think you nailed it. I, and, and I really, truly asked this question when I used to interview. It's like, okay, hold on a second. What kind of CMO are you looking for? Are you looking for a data-driven CMO? Are you looking for an operational CMO? Right. Are you looking for a transformational CMO? What type of CMO? There's, they, they, they come in different colors. Mm-hmm. What, what do you need for your... You know, what goes with the rest of your outfit? What are you looking for? And that need changes. And you could be, and I think that's a really great, that's a really great context, Steve, that, hey, you might need a transformational CMO for the first two years and then need a really operational one for the next three. Exactly. You don't need the same flavor the whole time. And I think because companies never really take the time to ask themselves that question, there's that there is that changeover that happens. Yeah, right. I, I I absolutely believe that has a direct effect on why year after year we see you know once again the CMO has the shorted blah 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 and then we all get meaning we all marketers we all get lumped together and say see marketing is you know a, a value oh, I mean a luxury and it's sales I'm not going to go down that path because we don't have time to even touch on that topic but <laughs> okay I always end each of of my conversations this way. The folks at home can't see this, but behind me is this is a set of album covers on a wall behind me, and I'm a very eclectic music guy. I have everything from Bruce Springsteen to the Rolling Stones to the Temptations, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and on and on and on. My favorite song of all time is a song called "Lean on Me" by Bill Withers, and the lyrics have always always resonated with me. And I, I always ask every person: Is there a song? Is there a lyric that just connects? And I don't want to say exemplifies who you are as a person, but it's kind of a word association, P.O. If I say, what song, what lyric, and why does it have meaning for you? Oof. That came out of the blue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I I can tell you who my favorite band is. Fine. Do that. It's the Arctic Monkeys from England. Okay. Why? I love rock, but it's that kind of rock that I love. That's what speaks to me always. I used to love the Strokes back in the early years, mm-hmm. and now I love the Arctic Monkeys and just follow them wherever I can. And I think it was AMPM was the album that is my favorite. And well, I actually have one more follow up question. Okay, and it has to do with marketing, but it also has to do with audio. Mm. So as I'm, I'm putting together the show and, you know, I'm setting up my studio and the album's behind me, like, you know, and audio and sounds. And I go, the sound of marketing. 
hmm, what does that mean, right? And I've now added it to my, you know, I'm asking people and going, what does the sound of marketing sound like? Mm. If I say that to you, there's no wrong answer. What comes to mind? Oh, the sound of marketing for me, when I think of the way you've asked me that question is, you know, how, like the audio, like the the sound of a Coke bottle opening mm. and that immediately triggers thirst, you know, that's how I think of it. Like when, when you do sound, can you do sound that triggers an emotion in you? And I think of Coke that way. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Well, listen, I, I, this has been incredible. I, I absolutely want to thank you for your time. I want to have you back on for sure, because you're a fascinating guy. So again, thank you, P.U. Shunker. Thank you for being a guest on the CMO Whisperer Show. All right. Thank you, Steve. Take care. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you 